0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We talked a couple weeks back about some shocking things going on over in Uganda, and we're going to take up that topic with Kel Munger of the Sacramento News and Review in our second segment today. It's a rather alarming story that you may not have heard about, but writing in the news and review last week, Kel wrote, Uganda is considering a law that would prescribe life imprisonment for gay people, the death sentence for HIV-positive gay people, and prison sentences for people who know about or support gay people instead of turning them in. And a boatload of U.S. religious figures are working behind the scenes to make it happen. It's incredible, but it's true, and we'll talk about it in our second segment today. But let's commence the show as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date today is December the 17th. On this date in 1583, Pope Paul III excommunicated King Henry VIII after he declared himself the supreme head of the Church of England. After that tiff, it was a bit easier to get a divorce in the British Isles. On December 17th in 1903, near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, American inventors Orville Orville and Wilbur Wright made the first successful flight of a self-powered, heavier-than-air aircraft. There are a lot of others that have claimed that they were the first, but we talked about this on the show a couple years back. the, The award pretty much has to go to the Wright brothers. And the key to their success wasn't that they were the first to get up in the air. They were the first to be able to control the flight once they got there. And if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. to see the replica of the flyer on display at the Smithsonian, you would note that it took them about 50 years to allow it to be there because the Smithsonian originally backed the claims of Samuel Langley to have been the first one to fly, and the Wrights weren't too happy about it. And frankly, I can't really blame them. Langley had a steam-powered craft shoved off a houseboat into the Potomac River. I don't think that really counts as controlled flight date in 1936, the American ventriloquist and showbiz legend Edgar Bergen with his wisecracking dummy Charlie McCarthy debuted on Rudy Valley's popular radio show. Despite the incongruity of a ventriloquist act on the radio, Bergen became a hit radio star and had his own show for more than 20 years. And dear listener, if you've never heard any of the, uh, the comedy stylings of uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, well, I think you, you owe it to yourself to check it out. They, they were, did some pretty funny stuff. If you go noodling around, try and find some exchanges between uh, McCarthy and W.C. Fields. On December 17th, 1963, the U.S. Congress passed the Clean Air Act, a sweeping set of laws designed to protect the environment from air pollution. It was the first legislation to place pollution controls on the automotive industry. And on December 17th in 1991, a long meeting between Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev and the President of the Russian Federation, Boris Yeltsin, resolved the details for the dissolution of the Soviet Union on or before New Year's Eve. So it was that what the Bolsheviks started in 1917 ended in 1992. Well, at least in theory. Our quote of the day comes from Thomas Paine, who once said, society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. And our quote of the day comes from Harry Truman, who once said, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. A joke that it comes from David Letterman, who quipped recently, uh, you know, the former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, she's now saying that global warming is a conspiracy. Doesn't believe that it's true, even though she can see the polar ice cap melting from her house. Letterman added, Maybe she really doesn't read all the newspapers. Our stat of the day, according to TalkingPointsMemo.com, law enforcement agencies have obtained 8 million GPS readings on the whereabouts of Sprint wireless customers over the past year. Sprint says thousands of individual customers were targeted in those law enforcement requests, which enable police to determine the location of a cell phone user at a given time. And that number again was 8. Million readings handed to law enforcement about where you are with your cell phone. Although I hate to say it, we even have a grimmer statistic, which I think we'll add, which is that over the past two years, the Pakistani Taliban has destroyed at least 473 schools, mostly girls and co-educational institutions, because it deemed them insufficiently Islamic. Hate to sound a a sour note for today's show, but we do have some bad news we put off. We're going to have to kick around a bit. Before doing that, why don't we do the good, the bad and the ugly? Corner of the week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for vegetarian pork sausage, after researchers in the Netherlands created meat in the laboratory for the first time using extracted cells from a live pig. Said a PETA spokesman, if meat is no longer a piece of a dead animal, there's no ethical objection. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for pleasing the boss, after Claudia De La Rosa of Sunny Isles Beach, Florida, was arrested on charges of falsely reporting a bomb at an airport. Police said De La Rosa called in the threat in order to delay a flight to Honduras because her boss was running a bit late. And it was an ugly week for political correctness last week when it was announced that a group of American Indians are suing the University of North Dakota to demand that it continue calling its sports teams the Fighting Sioux. UND was going to retire its supposedly offensive team nickname, but the local Spirit Lake tribe says it considers the name a tribute. When you hear them announce the name at the start of a hockey game, said tribe member Fred Blackcloud, it gives you the goosebumps. Having worked uh, down for Indian Health in New Mexico in the past, I, I do think a lot of that, uh, a lot of this is a tempest in a teapot. Saw an awful lot of Navajos walking around in Washington Redskins jackets. All right, from the week magazine's boring but important department, we have the following: the federal government's seven hundred billion dollar Wall Street bailout. Prevented an economic panic, an independent panel concluded. The Congressional Oversight Panel said that the Troubled Asset Relief Program was instrumental in avoiding a global financial meltdown, a far worse scenario than we have today, and cost about $200 billion less than was originally expected. I guess that would come under the heading of the good news. But reading on, we have what I think would come under the heading the bad news. Said the week... But the panel said that while TARP calmed Wall Street, the program did not slow home foreclosures, did not ease the credit crunch, nor did it shore up small banks. The bailout sent the message that some institutions are, in, are too important to fail, the panel said, which of course raises the question of, does that mean that <laughs> other institutions are too small to save? And of course, if some guys are too big to fail, wouldn't you put your money there? Wouldn't it make that harder for smaller institutions to compete? Well, the answer surely is yes, and uh, this, this huge fiasco continues to muddle along and, and wee along with it. Matt Taibbi, of course, continues to do some fine work on this. Uh, we would refer you to Rolling Stone for his latest piece about what Citicorp has been up to, which augments nicely his previous work on Goldman Sachs. Personally, I know I would feel a little bit better if some of these guys were perp-walked out of Wall Street and into paddy wagons while cuffed. But one story I want to spend some time on right now is uh, something we put off for the past few weeks the so called Climate Gate. As reported here and, of course, elsewhere, an anonymous hacker published thousands of emails which circulated among scientists at the Climate Research Center at Britain's East Anglia University. And ever since, a lot of folks have been working very, very hard to make something from almost nothing. As world leaders and scientists are gathering in Copenhagen to discuss what we might do to tackle the problems of global warming, the global warming deniers are out in full swing. Commenting about these emails, Lauren Gunter in the Toronto National Post said this could be exposing what might turn out to be the biggest scientific hoax in a generation or more. And no, I'm not sure whether the Toronto Post is owned by Rupert Murdoch, but the New York Post is. And echoing a similar view, it said that these emails show that scientists were fudging data to produce this infamous hockey stick graph showing temperatures shooting up dramatically in the past 20 years. A rather more intelligent response came from the London Guardian. Quoting George Monbiot, it said, The ClimateGate emails are an embarrassment for anyone working in the field of climate research. But a few scientists grousing about inconsistent data hardly negates a mountain of unequivocal evidence for man-made global warming. Ancient glaciers in the Alps and Himalayas and Greenland are shrinking visibly. The sea ice at the North Pole is thinning, dramatically. The eight warmest years since 1850 have all occurred in the past decade. Africa's Great Lakes are drying up, and northern forests are dying because bark beetles are no longer killed by prolonged freezing. The real fraud is being perpetrated by a coalition of coal and oil companies, which has paid scientists phony experts, and public relations professionals to drum up doubts about climate change and dupe the public. Damn, well said. Rather predictably, the Wall Street Journal uh, has launched a conspiracy theory about all of this. They say, follow the money. It may sound far-fetched that thousands of scientists all over the world would conspire to overhype the threat of global change, but not when you consider the billions of research dollars being funneled in their direction by gullible politicians. Maybe we should try following some of the other money. Uh, No, in the rant about conspiracy theories we had in this show a couple weeks ago, that that one is of the tinfoil hat variety. And Bradford Plummer, writing in The New Republic, said, Let's take a step back from this overheated argument. The proposition that the globe is growing warmer is based on two simple and undisputed propositions. The first is that carbon dioxide traps heat in the atmosphere. The second is that thanks to two centuries of very intensive burning of coal, oil, gas, and fossil fuels, there is much more CO2 in the atmosphere than there used to be. Accept those two facts, as any rational person must, and the only aspect of man-made global warming left to debate is how strong that warming effect will be, and what, if anything, we should do about it. And I do think this is worth taking a couple minutes to chat about. The good people at New Scientist magazine finally put together a response to all this, and their discussion of it was titled very simply, Why there's no sign of a climate conspiracy in hacked emails. And then proceeded with a Q and A question. How can we be sure the world really is warming? Answer. You can't fake spring coming earlier, or trees growing higher up the sides of mountains, or glaciers retreating, or arctic ice disappearing, or Alaskan permafrost melting, or the tropics expanding, or ice shelves breaking up, or sea levels rising faster and faster. There are thousands of similar examples from around the world. None of these observations by themselves prove the world is warming. But put all the data together and you have overwhelming evidence of a long-term warming trend, even without the temperature records compiled by researchers. Second question, how do we know greenhouse gases are the main cause? Answer, the physics is clear. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Greenhouse gases warm the atmosphere and CO2 is accumulating. Other explanations have been ruled out using a combination of modeling studies and observation. Direct measurements since the 1970s prove the recent warming is not due to changes in solar activity, for instance. We continue to applaud the efforts of New Scientist magazine to just simply uh, state the facts as they uh, appear to be. And uh, if you're still not a believer, you might want to check out the current edition of Scientific American, the article about methane in the permafrost across Eurasia and North America. Won't help you sleep any better tonight. It appears the permafrost is melting all across the northern hemisphere. It's thawing a bit, and in doing so, forming lakes. And when lakes are formed, these bodies of water at the bottom have anaerobic bacteria produce methane, which is a much more potent greenhouse gas than is carbon dioxide. The methane contribution from uh, the permafrost melting alone is probably going to add another third of a degree, perhaps two-thirds of a degree centigrade to the global warming problem. One thing intriguing about this article on Scientific American is that one possible solution is that by introducing large grazing herds of animals in these areas, they may be able to change the reflectivity of the ground and actually make it more reflective by stripping some of the vegetation off and having the ice that remains reflect heat back off into space. And the saddest part about talking about all of this is that we're having to, uh, to run up against a wall of public opinion in the United States, which has been strongly influenced by global warming deniers. We're hoping to get climate scientist James Hansen on this program at some point in the future. He has a new book out called Storms of My Grandchildren, The Truth About the Coming Climate Catastrophe and Our Last Chance to Save Humanity. Hansen believes there's nothing meaningful being done to limit emissions right now, and that the Kyoto Protocol is a dismal failure. Hansen's experience with the U.S. government has led him to believe that the political system in the U.S. and many other democracies are incapable of delivering effective action because politicians serve the short-term interests of special interest groups with plenty of money to throw around, like the fossil fuel industry, rather than the long-term welfare of citizens. In in a review of the book, in New Scientist, the reviewer noted that Hansen extraordinarily now thinks that civil resistance is the only way forward. It's up to you, he concludes. The reviewer said he hopes Hansen's wrong about that, but his track record is second to none. Earlier this decade, for instance, he was the first one to stick out his neck and say that official predictions of only a modest rise in sea level this century were wrong, and that ice caps would respond far more quickly to warming. It is now clear he was right. The ice caps are already shrinking faster than other scientists thought or were brave enough to say. But uh, people are starting to get a different mindset around the world. Uh, Nature magazine in September had an article published about planetary boundaries. Nine proposed boundaries that uh, that we need to keep in mind in dealing with climate change, ocean, ocean acidification, chemical pollution, etc., with an eye being toward setting safe limits under which natural systems can operate. And of course, they're debating where these limits ought to be, and it's not clear that we've passed the threshold on on, uh, CO2 in the atmosphere yet. Perhaps we have, but it's felt that we've crossed two, for sure, biodiversity loss and available nitrogen, thanks to modern fertilizers. I kind of expect that anyone listening to this program is sympathetic to the point of view we're putting forward here. So I hate to be in a position of preaching to the choir. But I'm spending some time on this today because I think that uh, as we all go home for the holidays and, you know, deal with our Republican brother-in-laws and such, you probably have to just quietly point out that, you know, Rush Limbaugh is not a good scientific authority to quote. In fact, we're concerned about some of his hot air contributions to global warming. But in all seriousness, people who I've known for years, very bright people, well-informed people ask me all the time, do you really think there's something to this global warming? Because they're buying into the conspiracy theory that, uh, you know, there's people that want to get research grants that are willing to mislead uh, the entire world uh, on on this great hoax being perpetrated. And, you know, actually, we've gotten a lot of emails saying, you know, do you really believe that's what's going on? Just to tell you the most dramatic single example is I've seen photographs of what it looks like on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro these days, and I can tell you, it didn't look like that 20 years ago. The ice is melting. Within 20 years, the snows of Kilimanjaro may be gone. And since, as these writers point out, this phenomenon is being repeated in various locations all over the globe, there really can't be a lot of doubt at this point about the trends in the climate. All right, let's talk about some other stuff. We'll return to that, of course, in the future. I think we'll take it take some time on a future program to take the strongest arguments being offered by the doubters and do what we can to demolish them all right we got a couple minutes left before going to a break let's talk about uh something written in the huffington post by bob ostertag who is a composer historian journalist and professor of techno cultural studies and music at uc davis we have andy to thank for this email which will excerpt as follows governor schwarzenegger should wash his mouth out with soap Here's what he did, called two students of mine terrorists. Specifically, he called their protests against the recent 32% tuition increase at the University of California, quote, a type of terrorism, unquote. Really? I'm not kidding. Shame on him. Allow me to introduce the terrorists. Julia Littman-Klepper and Laura Thatcher. Both of them have been students of mine at UC Davis. They're wonderful students, thoughtful, inquisitive, respectful, and supportive of their peers. They are not loud, strident voices. In fact, they're both noticeably quiet as students go. They're active in their departments and in the civics of their campus. On Monday of last week, a group of students from campuses around the UC occupied Wheeler Hall at UC Berkeley, occupied as in quotes, And announced their intention to host a week of lectures on things like the history of public education in the state the finances of the university of california and so on they also planned for music study time and lots of opportunity for students to sit and talk and work through their thoughts about what's happening to public education in california and what they might do about it what they were doing was technically illegal as the university police informed them but the students made clear they would not obstruct any of the university activities that were going on in the building A tacit agreement was developed between the police and the students. During the course of the week, several faculty members came to Wheeler and gave lectures hosted by the protesters. He goes on. So the students stayed there for a week doing their student thing until 4.30 a.m. Friday morning. That's when the police burst in, locked the building's doors so that no one could leave, and arrested everyone in their sleep and dragged them off to jail. This made the students very angry. I guess the protesters were then marched off to custody says the article. It's hard to piece together exactly what happened when the march went past the chancellor's residence. The police claim that students attacked the chancellor's home and arrested eight protesters, including Julia and Laura. The students say that all all that occurred was a minor vandalism by a small splinter group and the cops arrested the wrong people. With eight of their number facing multiple felony charges and the governor of the state calling them terrorists, the students' lawyers advised them not to discuss the events. These students were charged with rioting, threatening an educational official, attempted burglary, attempted arson of an occupied building, felony vandalism, assault with a deadly weapon on a police officer. Bail was set at $132,000 per student. Then noted Bob Ostertag, suddenly all charges against the students were dropped. Oops, never mind. Anyway, what all happened here, I'm not sure. But I do have to agree with Bob Ostertag when he says... Consider what it means in the United States in 2009 to call someone a terrorist. Terrorists kill people. They fly planes in the skyscrapers and explode car bombs in crowded marketplaces. Terrorists are our icons of evil. This country has been waging a bloody and costly war on terrorists for years. To call someone a terrorist is to place them on the other side of that war. He closed with the statement, UC President Mark Udorf is absolutely right in saying that there was behavior here that went far beyond the boundaries of what should have been tolerated. But it's the behavior of the governor, not that of the students. On that note, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.